Welcome to the Resourceful HDR podcast. I'm Sally Purcell, and in this podcast, I explore high degree research, HDR, career and employment experiences, how individuals have made career decisions, navigated transitions, and helped others to build a career. In Australia, HDR usually includes Master of Research, PhDs, and professional doctorates. I hope you enjoy this podcast. My guest today on the Resourceful HDR podcast is Associate Professor Tracy Rushmer from the Department of Earth and Planetary Sciences, who is also the Associate Dean High Degree Research for the Faculty of Science and Engineering at Macquarie University. Tracy's academic background is as an experimental petrologist plus rock mechanics. She oversees several experimental laboratories which can induce both hydrostatic and deformation conditions in which to investigate mineral melt interactions under pressure and temperature. Her work focuses on the evolution of planetary bodies, particularly on differentiation, which is the fundamental mechanism by which the terrestrial planets evolve through time. Recently, her work has explored the origin of Earth's first continental crust through a combination of phase equilibria studies, rock deformation experiments and numerical modelling. The far-reaching applications of her research have been recognised by funding from NSF in the United States, NASA and in Australia by the Australian Research Council. She has led and been involved in four funded ARC projects since 2011 and was made a Fellow of the Mineralogical Association of America in 2012. Tracy is also serving as Associate Dean High Degree Research for the Faculty of Science and Engineering. She is actively involved in recruiting high quality HDR students for Macquarie University science programs. She currently oversees the progress of over 550 PhD students in the faculty and a growing number of Master of Research students. Thanks for joining me today, Tracy. It's a pleasure being here. So as someone who has a well-established academic career, can you recall what led you to enrol in a PhD? Well, it wasn't straightforward, I will say. I'm uh, from California and I did my bachelor degree at University of California at Berkeley. And it's a very dynamic university. And in terms of earth and planetary sciences, it still rates as one of the top five in the world. So I was surrounded by brilliant professors, um, all men, I might add, mostly, but very engaging. And I had a couple of real mentors there. And I just saw how exciting it could be. So, But I never thought I could get a PhD. <laughs> I mean, no way. So I, I had my goal. I would get a master's and I would do one paper. <laughs> and I, I just thought, if I can do that, I'd be so happy. So I had an opportunity, though, and I think in many ways, life you know, takes you on these pathways and you need to sort of decide, will I take this opportunity or won't I? And I decided to move to Switzerland and pursue my master's there because I had a boyfriend, actually, who had a postdoc there. And I fell in love with the traditional geology of the Alps. And I also saw people doing PhDs in areas that weren't so theoretical. Berkeley was very theater theoretical, geophysics, very high-end crystallography, so I had a wonderful background. But I didn't have that joy of the day-to-day, -day, get your hands on some rocks. And, and the geologists at the... Uh, at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology, or ETH in Zurich, had a very strong uh, field component that involved the Alps and the Himalayas. And I ended up doing a diploma 
which is like a mapping masters. And I did that in just at the, at the valley south of the Matterhorn. So I was in heaven. And yes, from there I thought, well, if I can continue doing this for a PhD, I would love to do it. So I, that started me on the path of thinking I could do it. But it did involve an, sort of an international change. I think if I'd stayed in the States, my path would have been different. Mm. So yes, that road less traveled really, that you mm. thought, well, exactly what you said, that I can choose to do this or not yeah. to do that. And really the boyfriend was the catalyst. Yeah, the boyfriend. And, and we, didn't st we actually broke up a bit uh, after a couple of years because he wanted to go back to the States. I went back because I had visa issues and everything, and I ended up returning to ETH to do my PhD. Right. Yeah, so I, it, I had a kind of an unusual pathway, but I definitely chose I wanted to go to Zurich ETH and do my field-based PhD. However, if you read who I am now, you'll realize that I actually ended up observing the field, but then wanting to recreate that in the laboratory. Right. You've talked about how that was, it was a bit of serendipity, a bit of shift in your own self-belief yeah. that you could actually do a PhD, particularly surrounded by so many men. Oh, indeed, and, and especially in Switzerland. Yes. Yeah. I imagine you, you didn't really have clear career plans because you were looking to do that master's in one paper. That's as far as you were looking. Yep. Yep. And then you found yourself enrolled in a PhD and continuing. When did you start to get a sense of where you might want to head in that first instance at least? Yeah, that, that, that's a good question. I, was, I distinctly remember there's an, actually a point <clears throat> before I returned to Switzerland. I spent two years at uh, Arizona State studying um, experimental work because I was thrown into it. Like you said, a bit of serendipity. I did not finish my PhD there, but I underwent a oral examination, and I had to pick three different proposals to defend. And the one I really wanted was to study experimentally what happens when one plate goes underneath another, and you start having melting and magmas come up. And there was a wonderful example in the Aeolian Islands in southern Italy, which I very much wanted to do field work in. And they were laughing at me on my, my examination panel. They said, you could probably pick another field area. And I'm like, no, I, <laughs> I want to go to this field area. And I did. But it wasn't until I was out there in the field with my Italian colleagues and my supervisor that he said, you know, this is all great, but you're really looking at a small problem. Why don't you take on a big problem? And he talked about the major processes that are involved. And it was sitting on the rocks while I changed my mind. And it happened again in my career, which got me involved in planetary evolution. Big questions, you can, you can make so much progress in big questions, but if you're just sticking to small questions because you're nervous, that isn't gonna solve any real issues and you wanna move science forward. You may not make the big leap, but certainly what I saw at Berkeley with people, I was fortunate enough to be there when the asteroid hypothesis came out that killed the dinosaurs. That was an amazing experience to watch. The scientists fighting each other, the paleontologists being really upset, the news cameras. I was like, wow, that's a big problem. You know, seeing big problems being addressed. So when my supervisor from Arizona State said, why don't you do this, I agreed, and we changed my project. Unfortunately, he lost funding and he had several PhD students to support, and um, he gave the support to the ones who had children, and I completely supported that. Mm. So I moved with a grant to go back to ETH, which is kind of what I wanted to do anyway, and I could be entered into the PhD program because I had done the master's diploma there. 
my 20s were very interesting scientifically. And I think from there, it was not a question. I was going to stay in academia. I was very lucky at that time. It wasn't quite the proliferation of, of publications and, and the social media and everything that's involved in an academic career now. But I don't know. I might have flourished in today's world. You know, I'm you, sure you, you don't. Have. You know, <laughs> thank I have you, a Sally. feeling you would have. Over the time of your PhD candidature, how did your plans change? Oh, well, the initial plan to do the melting on, on rocks that were not really as relevant as the ocean floor, which is basalt, um, that was a big change. And I restarted my PhD, so to speak. When I moved from Arizona State, I had new funding. And it wasn't as long, but I had enough background. I had done the mapping. I had done the thermodynamic background for the experimental research I needed to do. And it all came together with addressing a big problem. And I, a bit of serendipity here, I touched upon a problem with a very well-known um, professor that needed to be addressed, and I took it on. And so my first paper, uh, and at that time we did single authors, uh, was very well received. So I became relatively well known quickly because I addressed a big problem with a, a new technique with absolute clarity. And some of that came, or all of that came from help from people supervising me. But one of the people I had met was at Arizona State who had been a postdoc at the time, an Australian. So he always talked about Australia. And um, so he helped me with these calculations. Um, I knew how to do them. I did them. And then there was a, another circumstance where I was helping a visiting professor in a class. And um, I saw a problem that he addressed that I could do experimentally. And we got together and we wrote another high-impact paper. So I was at the right place at the right time, but also saw opportunity to address really exciting questions. Also, what I hear when you're talking about that is bravery. There's a lot of people that have opportunity. It's also about taking action. Yeah, yeah, definitely is. I definitely have been told I'm gutsy. Yep. I've always been gutsy. <laughs> I think that's actually a really important quality that you possess. So when people look at you and think, oh, all these things have happened, but you, you've created so many of those things, being brave and taking those actions. Yeah, you, you do need to step up. People want to see, I mean, you can go along in your life and, and not take those and be perfectly happy and comfortable. But I, I did thrive on some of this, let's just do it. I'm going to do it. And uh, it's made my life quite, quite interesting. I think you still do that, which is I great do. for us. <laughs> so you were talking about the postdoc that you met that talked a lot about Australia. Yeah. Did, was that the reason you came to Australia? What brought you Yeah, here? partly. That, that He was very passionate about Australia, and he had a visiting Australian that came over um, who also talked passionately about Australia. So when I had an opportunity... To come to Australia, it was I was um, actually at the University of Vermont, <laughs> so it took me a little while before I actually got to Australia, but it always had stuck in my mind from the postdoc and from the visiting professor, and I went on a field trip. So I came over to Sydney during in the 2000, actually. It was around the Olympics, but I, I kind of heard about them, and I had a really good friend from Switzerland that was a professor here at Macquarie, which is such a coincidence. And he told me a lot about Macquarie and he let me stay at his apartment and I went to the Sydney Uni, which is where I did the conference was based. And I just fell in love with Sydney. And then I did a two week field trip in the outback. What's not to love? And it had been raining and there were wildflowers everywhere. So I fell in love with Australia and I, you know, thought, why not? So a few years later, I went on sabbatical at ANU, which is really punches above its weight in terms of experimental work. And I worked in the one of the best groups 
at ANU, um, is led by a laureate professor now. I loved it. I really loved it. And I fit in quite well. Love that adventurous atmosphere that comes with Australia somewhat. A bit of the West, you know, I, I feel it from California. It wasn't long after, a year and a half later, they started developing the experimental labs here at Macquarie because they had been decommissioned and then a new experimentalist came in and they wanted to hire me. So they wrote me an email and said, we don't know what your status is, but there is an upcoming position. There's these core hires, they call them. And I was hired upon interviewing. So I, and I went for a position that I was very confident. I'd already been tenured in the States, and so I was quite confident that if I went for a certain level that it would be easier, and I really wanted it. I, w I was t ready. I was really feeling a need for a change. I'd been in the States in the, in the East Coast for 12 years, and I was ready for a change. Hmm. And I was very lucky. Yeah, I really feel still lucky. Lucky country. <laughs> yeah. And look, you know, the thing about luck is, you know, Louis Pasteur, yeah. you know, chance favors a prepared mind. Yes, yes. <laughs> Your mind was certainly prepared. It was, it was. I had been prepared. Also, I was ready. I had built a lab already. I could build this lab. I knew I could do it. And uh, there was a lot of a bigger group here that would help with the ex experimental side of things. So I was, and I really liked uh, Macquarie, and I had gotten to know it through my previous encounter. It was quite interesting how that was just coincidental. So that's serendipity for yeah, sure. Serendipity for sure. <laughs> Planned happenstance. Yeah. You are a woman in a traditionally male-dominated field. What challenges did that bring for you, and how did you manage them? Yeah, that's a. It, it was a challenge, um, particularly in Switzerland. In Berkeley, it was a pretty uh, open-minded and, and forward-thinking place. Not that Switzerland isn't in some ways, but it's still very traditional in others. And there were very few women. There were, at the time, there were about 300 professors at ETH, and only four were women. And I kind of didn't notice it when I was younger, because I was just, in, and they were undergraduates, and they were diploma students that were women, lots of wonderful women. But what I hadn't noticed is that how that attrition just kind of stopped. And then I started noticing it when I was looking for postdocs. And I ended up doing a po four-year postdoc at Zurich. And then, I, you know, one, in one case, one of my colleagues married one of the professors, and he told her she couldn't do any more research. And she oh, went into banking dear. and couldn't be in the department. I'll never, ever forget that. Um, it was pretty tough. And I just surprised them. I didn't. I, it, I didn't actually let them get me down. I do know that there were times, I worked with men all the time, very comfortable with men, um, so I just didn't think about it. But there were times when I got my PhD and I was handed my diploma, a bunch of women I didn't know stood up and clapped because they were supporting women receiving PhDs at ETH. So that was really important. I remember there were a couple of women really pushing for more equal rights. Um, I didn't get too much involved in that because it was such an uphill battle. But I, I do know that being myself and representing a, a mind that is inquiring, asking questions at, at seminars, not being, I was never bullied per se, but I was by the same professor that actually told his new wife she couldn't work. He once came up to me later, a few years after he retired and said, I really respect what you did and I can see you now. It was an amazing thing. Mm. It happened in the States, though, at a American Geophysical Union. I don't know if you would have said it to me in Switzerland. Very traditional. Mm. And it's interesting that 
he could admit it at that stage. But probably it, he didn't even think about it no. either. No, it thing. was just the way it was yeah. in the 80s yeah. and early 90s. Yeah. It was mid-90s by the time I left. Mm. So he would have said that to me maybe in the yeah, late 90s. Yeah, and as you say, you may not have got into it too much as you know, being out there as an advocate, but you were just modeling it, really. Yeah, I was much more modeling it because I, I had been that way at Berkeley, mm. you know, and we had a pretty good 50-50, you know, and I just didn't see it. You know, the professors weren't women. There was one woman mm. in geophysics. She was amazing. I think I would, I don't know how I would do it differently now. It's just you need the maturity to be able to handle some things and call things out. Yeah, so. it's true. But each woman that gets further ahead, yeah. like yourself, allows the next generation Yeah, and I had a that. couple of women that were fuller, higher up in the system at ETH that I, that I worked closely with. Hmm. They were great. One let me stay in her apartment for a time, and she was, I saw her just a few months ago. It was great to see her. And I imagine those relationships become very strong when yeah. you are a, a minority. She was a real mentor yeah. Yeah, in different ways, completely different a research field. <laughs> so do you feel that being a woman has impacted your career? I mean, I, you can't separate it. If I had been, I wouldn't have been as noticed. My guts wouldn't have been as noticed. I tended to be a gutsy woman, which could be interpreted poorly. <laughs> and maybe in some, I don't think so, but I was relatively well-liked and being gutsy at the same time. If I'd been a guy, I probably would have been the same personality. Um, I might have had more options for field some of the field trips were awkward, how you handle being in the field with many more men than women. I might have had more options, say, going to the Himalaya. You know, there were a couple of things that I would have liked to have done that I didn't even ask. But I think overall, I had no problem in the laboratories. Women experimentalists were pretty detailed, and I did fall into that and did quality experiments, whereas some men may have not been as, you know, maybe they would have been more interested in being out in the field. I don't know. Look, everybody has their own restrictions because yeah. of their gender, really. Yeah, exactly. So exactly. You don't actually know. And it's even in the Himalaya, it's all about, you know, your strength and carrying rocks and, you know. <laughs> How has it informed your mentoring of female students and those from minorities, particularly because you mentioned the mentor that you had yeah. from a different, you know, research area? Yeah, significantly. So I came to Australia and spent the first part of my time here building the experiment labs as they wanted. I built some extra labs at the synchrotron, also very male-dominated, not worried about that. I had a minority PhD student, and I've had two women higher-degree research students and two men, so I've, I've had a range. The minority student was really interesting. He's American, he's black, Puerto Rican, and he did have some issues, and he loves Australia. He's still here. He became Australian a few years ago, and that kind of minority of being of color here in Australia, you know, it, it, it was challenging. So we talked about it a little bit. I support all my students in the areas that they want because some student, well, every student's different. Every, every PhD, every master's student's different. So tying into that, but the women, encouraging them to, to not be afraid, just to get out there. But it depends on their personalities too. You have to kind of nurture the areas that they need. You can't put on them. But you can say, this is an example of how you can do something. This is, you know, I'm at meetings, I bring them along, I take them, I introduce them. And it's much better now. It's mm. much better now. I've had three students at the meeting, big meeting in August, and it's, it's so much more inclusive, it's so much more diverse, it's, people are much more aware. And I'm happy to see those changes. Yep. And those changes have come through people like yourself. Yeah. 
there have been some interesting law cases too. That's always helpful. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked about some serendipity and chance and how that's played in your life and your career. So are there other things that you would add to that? Those were the big ones, certainly meeting the right people at the right time and being inspired by them. Certainly serendipity of being right in the center of the dinosaur extinction. Yeah, huge. One of our newest, no longer a hypothesis. It's kind of a fact. Mm. And we kind of move into that in that arc of science and watching that. So that was a really important process to watch. And I was just serendipity because I was at the right place at the right time. Also, the, the, the excitement in my field when I could make a difference. I think that was the right timing. You could do the same thesis five years later and it wouldn't have been as impactful. Besides that, obviously coming to Australia at a really good time. You know, it was um, right after, I think it was right before the GFC. And so financially, it was a really good idea. <laughs> and I had no idea that was going to happen. Just in terms of, of quality of life, I'm glad I'm here. It's, yeah. you know, we're struggling in other places. Yeah. And um, so I think that was a, a good choice I made. And that could have been serendipity of just that letter being written and somebody saying, would you be interested? Mm. Again, it's my decision to do it. That's right. So, um, yeah, I, I, I can't, I think, I think in some ways it's been serendipity and open to opportunity. Yeah. Serendipity often is only noticed when you either take action or you look back is and it, think, oh, I? yeah. <laughs> exactly. and there are moments, but I probably more moments I've taken the chance than others, yep. than not. Because there is that famous saying, can't even yeah. think who said it, but you know, yeah. if you look back and, is it Mark Twain? Yeah. You regret yes. the things that you didn't do. Do, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, you regret the things you yeah. didn't do. And my mother was a very, very dynamic person and really always was up for mm. things. And so I learned a lot from that. And again, a female role model. Exactly. Mm. And she was always working. And so I, I never had any issues. I'm a big believer in finding purpose in life and work. That's what I'm driven by. Yeah. Uh, so many people talk about choosing careers based on passion. And that may be true for some people. It may even be true for mm -hmm. you. And to some extent, it sounds like that. Um, my own experience and that of other people I've spoken to over the years is that finding interest and purpose can be a discovery process. Developing over time as a result of exposure to different experiences, opportunities, taking some yeah. chances yeah. and talking to a broad range of people. And, and you've sort of described that as even though you began with, with a, an interest and potentially a passion, it really has grown and shifted over time. Mm. Mm. So how do you feel that you've found purpose throughout your career? How has that evolved? Over yeah, time? it's definitely evolved. I do like machines, <laughs> so this is sort of out of left, but I do find bringing, so technology is what drives discovery. And one of the things that, I, I built a high pressure facility at the Synchrotron, and I know that was just absolutely out of discovery, out of evolved about what we can do as a community, bringing together scientists. So I did bring together scientists in Australia and saying we can do this new technology. And so it's, it's commissioned, it's up, it's running, it's collecting data, and it's one of the few in the world of its kind. So I'm really proud of that. And that's in some way that purpose, and I, I, because there wasn't a high-pressure facility in Australia, and it deserved one. So, <laughs> so that was a really big thing. But more so what's happened is becoming associate dean of HDR, not just with my own students, but seeing you know, over 500, 600. You know, it fluctuates, but it's a lot of students. And although I only interact with maybe a handful who are having issues, 
I find every situation one that brings out a different understanding of, of the sense of doing a PhD for different people, what it's like, what they go through. Some areas are sim similar, like supervisor-student issues. How do we solve those? But that's a real purpose, is helping PhD students navigate, because I've had to navigate in different ways, but everyone has to navigate that process. Once in a while, there'll be a student that just like, bam, not a problem. We do have those amazing students, but other students are amazing who overcome the, you know, issues. You know, we had fire in the, in the labs in one of the departments. We had to deal with how we would handle supporting those students when they couldn't do their work. The fear of, of an actual accident in a laboratory, that's one whole area. So, or simple issues with, and I'm dealing with this right now as a supervisor leaving and moving to a better opportunity and leaving students behind. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of emotion around that because they feel abandoned. Mm -hmm. So we've had meetings, you know, how do we get that safety net? So that's, that's sort of giving back in that community, feeling you're really working with the community. And I work with the FSC, the Faculty of Science and Engineering, HDR community quite a lot. That's 60% of my job, but sometimes it's 120% 120 of my job. Well, you know, the thing is, when you're talking about each PhD, each student is different. Well, because we're all people. Exactly. You know, we don't just come in to anything we do as a blank slate. Yeah. So there's all those things. And when you say about the ones that can go through and be able to just nail it yeah. fairly easily, yeah. you know, maybe they've been lucky enough in life to have not had major challenges. Some of the people I've met, you've met. You yeah. know, you just sometimes look at them and just are stunned with how they've actually achieved what they've achieved with the barriers that they Absolutely. have Absolutely. And those barriers can make a more resilient uh, postdoc, academic, um, and sometimes you see the shining stars that get to 30s, 40s, hit a bump, and all of a sudden they're like, I don't know what to do. I have witnessed that. Yeah, and that's, that's true. close and personal. It's very hard. And you're like, oh, don't you see? You could do this, you could do this, yeah. you could do this. Like, well, I haven't, I haven't had to do that before. You know, and I said, well... Learning it as a PhD or postdoc, when you, your lab burns or your experiments die, or you know, I've had all of it. You just develop that resilience, and resilience is really important in academia, yeah. in any, in in life. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's that you know, being knocked down and getting up again, and learning along the way, though, being able to have those experiences and say, well, when something like this happened to me before, or someone in my lab, I. They did this. Yeah. So you, you actually see that they were able to find a strategy and find their way through. So that gives you a sense that there's possibilities. And if you haven't had that, as you say, yeah. it's, well, everything's just run smoothly. It, it can actually be yeah, a difficult process. It can be. And you can slide into things that perhaps some, that are some kind of gray area with integrity. You know, maybe mm. you had a certain process that worked in your laboratory, but you didn't actually understand ethics and integrity that we are now seeing that's rife in some areas. So I'm actively involved in doing the Macquarie Code of Conduct with the Research Integrity Office, where students are trained and staff are trained, but this is authorship. This is how you agree. This is, and just things that may in some labs go very smoothly, or they may have just been told, you know, you're going to do this, and they think that's the way it's done, when in fact there needs to be a dialogue. And getting dialogues between students and supervisors can be difficult. Yes, it can be. Yeah. You've had many years' experience as a research supervisor, speaking of supervision, and as the Associate Dean High Degree Research. 
Have you maintained contact with many of the HDR candidates that you have supervised? Yeah, yeah, I do. Um, I had six master's students in the States, and I'm meeting up with one of them <laughs> who's now a professor, and he just won a big National Science Foundation Award. I'm so proud of him. Oh, that must be really rewarding. It is really rewarding. So Caleb, his name is, he's great. Um, so I'll be meeting with him. I keep in touch with my student that came from the States who's a mono minority but's planning to stay in Australia, but not in academia. So that's been a very interesting pathway to watch. He's gone into the state. Um, he's at the state agency um, in New South Wales. Uh, my master's student has gone into environmental consulting. Um, keep in touch with her. And yes, I do. Not all of them. Some have gone on um, to do completely different pathways. I have a master's student did their PhD at UCLA, then went to Houston to work with gas and oil. I haven't seen much of him, but um, but we all have fond memories, you know, of those times. So it's the and then when I see one, I can catch up with some of the mm. others. But I'm mm. looking forward to seeing students at the big meetings, and I do see them, the ones that have stayed in academia, mm. but even the ones who don't, I keep in touch with. Mm. It's a little bit easier with um, Instagram and some of the social media just to touch base. Yeah, that's right. And then you know, if you are going somewhere, you'll know where they are. You exactly. can meet up with them in person. Yeah, that's so much fun. It is fun. So what have you noticed about the HDR career paths over that period? You've mentioned some have stayed in academia, others yeah. have gone elsewhere. Do you feel that there's more choice now or is it more difficult? What do you I, think? Yeah, I think we're producing a lot of PhDs in Australia for not a lot of positions. I think it was in, a academia. in academia. I think I was very lucky, but also, you know, it's taken me a little while to adjust to the fact that you may not have an academic pathway. And I'm gotten over that because there's lots of exciting things to do and a range of things. And I've been um, really motivated by students that say, look, I want to do this, and then listening to their reasons. And some of them just don't want to be on the grant, you know, cycle of trying to apply and get disappointed. You, that resilience, you really need it when you get the knocks. You know, you didn't get this funded. You don't have any research funding. It's tough. So, um, yeah, so I, I see things have changed. I just within the last, I've done the HDR job for about five years. And even then, we've seen resources from the government being moved into training PhDs to become more industry focused, but also industry to become more aware that PhDs have a lot to offer. And when my student was looking for jobs out, you know, outside of academia, he didn't have much luck till he did the um, the Australian Postgraduate Internship Program, and that's called APR Intern, and that has helped place students in short internships, and they can get experience, and it's helped me to see the possibilities. It's not just straight industry, as I thought maybe, you know, your manufacturing. Mm. There's not a lot of manufacturing, mm. actually, in Australia. But there's NGOs, there's, you know, state-run research facilities like ANSTO. There's lots of opportunities. So I've seen a more variety of, of places that you, can, that you can really do well with a PhD. I just think we need to get better understanding of what a PhD, a PhD can time manage, budget, um, can not just do research. You know, there's a lot involved when you do a PhD project. Yeah. need to really look at is... What are those attributes? We talk about graduate attributes, but yeah. then if we we haven't really looked closely at the PhD graduate attributes, yeah. and of course their capacity to look at data. And oh, to I, well, that's what my students were doing. They were doing data in a, in an agricultural mm -hmm. setting, 
you know, it wasn't directly in deep earth, you know, processes. Yeah, that's right. And it'll be very much translatable, but they have to be able to see that. But also, as you say, when we use industry, we're using them in the broadest term. We are, yeah. It'd be nice to have a better term, actually. I tend to say other sectors. Other sectors, (laughs) I like that. So we've got the higher education sector, and then we have, as you say, manufacturing is not enormous in Australia, but we have so many other uh, education, government sector, NGOs, the commercial sector. So there's lots of opportunities. And I guess for me, it's about not just going, oh, well, here's a job. It is about the person going, well, what matters to me? But it may be that we've talked about this before earlier about inquiring minds. So maybe it's like, I want a problem and I want to solve it and I want to see what difference it makes. And look, some of the PhD grads I've talked to who have gone out into agencies or Mm -hmm. other roles, they've said, I actually get to see how it makes a difference. Absolutely. And so that they find that more rewarding. So it can be a very personal thing. Absolutely. And I think that's a lot of the driving forces. They want to see impact quicker than in an academic sense, which is now it's like you get a paper published and it's like, well, there's 10,000 papers been published today. And I had a better sense of, of impact when I was in the you know, it would late 80s, early 90s, because that's when there weren't as many papers in your field. So maybe there is a drive towards some, seeing some kind of output that, that makes an impact. People like to cook for that reason. Yeah, that's right. You know, yeah. you, you like, like to see a re- tangible result. Yeah, that's right. I'm really pleased to hear you say that you've come around to see that there are other options. But it is interesting that when I sort of said, oh, Sorry, there aren't yeah. that many jobs in academia yeah. because people say there aren't many jobs. And go, yeah, there's plenty of jobs. Yeah. Um, no, I still, I'm a bit of a, because of being at Berkeley and ETH, you know, that was such the incredible mindset. Yeah. But then I went to University of Vermont and for 12 years after ETH, and there I had to see a lot of flexibility because we didn't even have a PhD program. So none of my master's students, well, they actually all went on, all but two went on for a PhD but to see the different areas in the states where, you know, we were at a kind of a second-tier university where you didn't all think about academia. Yeah. yeah. And I think the other part of this is the assumption that a PhD candidate has gone to do a PhD to become mm, an academic. Absolutely. And, and getting the postdoc and the... Oh, whereas a lot of so them actually don't. But then I've talked to different people say, well, I now feel that that's what I have to do because that's what everyone talks about. Well, that's one of the things we've done with the Master's of Research program. It made it really clear... When it was first brought out, it was a pathway to PhD. But what we realized is that it's not necessarily. So two years ago, we gave a lot of information sessions saying this can be a degree where you leave and you go straight on into a different kind of environment and different sector, as you say. And so we, um, in fact, I just had a, a, a firsthand discussion with a, with a student that's now doing a PhD but went into industry, BHP, for a few years, and he said, I was hired because I'd done a master's of research because I could project manage, I could manage a budget, I could think through a problem, I could write. And he could and understand he could, data. And he could understand <laughs> data, absolutely. Yeah. So he's done really well. And, yeah, and no. those master's students do not need to go on to do a PhD. They do not, and they, they still excel. They've got that extra degree. So we're really selling it not just as a pathway for a PhD. Yeah, I'm really pleased to hear that because that, that's why I'll concentrate more on the PhD because I see the Master of Research as being a very good quali- quality degree. It is, yeah. That is highly employable. It is highly employable. Yeah. And one of the reasons I was, I think, hired upon being interviewed was that I had run the program for six years at Vermont, and I knew exactly what you can do with a Master's mm-hmm. of Research. Mm-hmm. Same kind of degree, a two-year degree. 
So I saw the, the capability that you can do. So we've really rolled it out, I think, in faculty of science and engineering in a good way. There's still hiccups, but it's new for Australia. Yeah, that's right. And you'll get there. We will. So what do you think is important then, uh, with some of that in mind, for someone who's considering enrolling in a Master of Research or a PhD? Yeah, looking at, and, and I guess I can't really use my own experience, which is I just wanted that one small goal. Mm. But looking at it as, a, as a, a wonderful experience, a cohesive experience where you, you satisfy those urges of inquiring minds, you get to study something. Meeting a cohort, meeting a great cohort of people, people that you will potentially know the rest of your life. Seeing new things, you get to live on a, or you know, live on and or in basically a university campus. How fun is that? There's lots of activities that happen on a on a university campus that I think just engages all the different senses, um, and I guess just having that sense of accomplishment when you actually complete a degree. And I did this. You're saying try and enjoy the experience. Absolutely. And I must say, I <laughs> see different perspectives. Yeah, on that. I know. <laughs> and I can see that it can be hard. It is going. I'm immersing myself in something. And people I've talked to that say, oh, I just looked at it as a great opportunity where I got to be with this great cohort of people and really immerse myself and understand and learn and grow. Yeah. And I think it's a matter of how might I use it, not what can I do with it. Exactly. It, the degree isn't anything. It's you are the degree. And I learned that from my supervisor who ended up I didn't get my PhD from because he said, science isn't something out there. You, you are science. It's you. Just like the, the degree isn't anything more than you completing a, a cool project and learning how to project manage, getting to know these people, having a good time. It's just a certain amount of time. You've done it. And you can write it up and you can say, oh, maybe I can get a publication, but not. It doesn't really matter. And right now I'm seeing my son finish. He's actually at the University of Sydney doing an honors, seeing him process through this and watching him do an honors degree. Really proud of using new technology. So th just the training there. I think, I think he could use another year with a master's of research, but um, that excitement about, about you know, it's not really the piece of paper he's after. It's really the experience in the laboratory or in the field that you just do something new. It's, it's really exciting. Mm. And it means that you have learnt something. You've grown. Technical, And yes. you've often not noticed it. So I Indeed. do think there's a matter of going back through it. And ideally, going while you're going through it is reflecting, reflecting. as you go. Yeah. And if you haven't done that, reflecting as you've completed, to then recognize how you've changed and how you've developed and what you actually have to offer yeah. and where you might like to offer that. That's right. And, and there's a much more of an open mind about moving into other sectors than there has been. And that's been also a government choice where the, the, the industries have been you know, pushed to, to, to really take in our well-educated uh, PhDs and masters. Having said that, they are also looking for people that have these attributes and they're discovering that yeah. PhDs have them and startups are really keen. They to are them. really keen. Really well, keen. that's what we're finding is the startups are grabbing. Well, they've got all the things they need, you know. <laughs> Industry plus imagination, creativity plus, know, you know, the tasks and, and how you put together a work packages and a really good project management. Yeah, absolutely. And that they also know how to have evidence. Absolutely. Evidence-driven is almost everywhere required. And yeah. I would think startups that succeed have that yeah. evidence yeah, and the others do. that don't often don't. Yeah. No, yeah. startups is a really interesting area. We, we have done a bit of that um, yeah. in our program with Has the entrepreneurial program. 
That's it was great. really fun. And there's the incubator here yes. as well. And Done a the bit Venture of the incubator. Cafe. Yep. yep, been down to the Venture Cafe. We yep. do like it. <laughs> yeah. You're a great champion of the APR intern program, which we're very happy about. And it provides opportunities for employers to take advantage of these skills that we've talked about with PhD candidates and for the PhD candidates to gain work to find solutions for an employer in a different sector and to learn, then learn how to understand what they do have to offer. Yeah. Could you talk about the value of the APR intern program that you've experienced and the positive impacts for the HDR candidate and the host oh, employer? What absolutely. Well, it's been fantastic. Um, I am a great champion of it because everyone wins. The industry gets a kickback, <laughs> you know, if it were. Um, the student uh, gets a salary. The supervisor gets a little bit of money, and the industry gets gets government support. So um, everyone wins. It goes five to six months, so it doesn't interrupt them too much. It's best just after they put in their thesis, and then they do it for six months while the corrections, and then they, they can modify and they can work with their employer. We have placed people with Meat Livestock Australia, two people that were from Earth Science, but they were doing robots and data analysis. We've placed a lot of computing and engineers around in banks even, some of the you know, big data, again big data. Um, really have had lots of wonderful feedback and we have a small startup that has taken two or three and right now I've, I've brought in our New South Wales representative to sit in the faculty so students can talk with him and we've just got three new opportunities yesterday. Um, all doing uh, image analysis, cybersecurity, and big data again. On October 15th, which is not far from now, next week, we're doing a big uh, APR intern event where we're inviting industry PhD students um, and supervisors to come get to know each other, a meet and greet. And we've done a few of these, and it's really led to understanding each other. So we've done uh, panels. And I just think it's such a good program. I'm working with um, one of the, the, the higher-ups in Canberra on developing a type of bundles where you bring in groups, and I'm hoping that we can somehow do longer-term APR interns instead of one just one off, but actually do plan maybe two or three. Um, and we're finding that it's starting to grow so much that the industry is really catching on. So um, I'm really proud of the program. Macquarie's leading the Sydney Basin area in our placements, and I think it's because we're so for it, and we really have pushed with the panels and with the meet and greets to get people to know each other. It's just about seeing capability, and they do. They see the capability, and more. the more they do, the more they want to bring in new ones because they get a great deal. They certainly do. Yeah. You know, the work Catherine, our yeah. colleague Catherine yeah. Innes, doing, getting everybody involved in that has it's been a bit of an uphill battle and it you has started been. even before Catherine began yeah. I think with anything like that it gains impetus it has yeah and now it's hopefully becoming something that people are really considering and yeah. exactly as you said that's been the other issue we've faced is to try and get the other sectors to sort of understand what a PhD yeah. is because in Australia you know unlike Germany you know the other sectors would go why, why would I be yeah. interested and well my PhD student before he did the APR intern at MLA he was told you it was at ANSTO they said we can't hire you because you're you're at the level you are because your PhD is your higher level than your boss so you can't have the job I'm like, oh, come on. Yeah, I think that is a real issue. Yeah, yeah. so he went, did the APR intern. He got a job at the State Department. Hmm. 
and the, and look, government does employ a lot of PhDs. They which do, is they good do. But I think you'd have a better chance now. Apart from encouraging PhD candidates to undertake an internship, what other advice would you give to the HDR candidates to ensure they're well-rounded graduates who have built a high standard of employability skills and an understanding of how to be their own agent, as you have mm. been, <laughs> in relation to career development? Yeah, that's something that we are doing very actively. We called it the Research Enrichment Program. There are different kinds of enrichment programs. So overall, they're the soft skills that we're developing. and um, Terrible term. I know it is. Because they're, they're such that, important. They're the hardest. Learning how to talk to people, you know. <laughs> yeah. And in scientists, you know, sometimes we have issues. Um, but, yeah, there, there's, there are programs we're developing, um, workshops in time management, workshops in budgeting. You have to be able to do that. Um, and certainly well-being. Um, we do see more and more PhDs under stress, and I I follow the international, so I look at very much an international piece because I was in Switzerland and the States, and I have colleagues from all over the world, and we're all seeing it. It's, so it's not our length of time for a PhD. Mm. It can be more stressful here because of the three years, and we know we have stress around that. But we're seeing a lot of just, I don't know what it is, a fast-moving pace of social media. Some of, the, some of the problems that they're coming across when you really are very engaged in social media. Maybe there's some give and take there that you have to be careful of that we're not as trained. So training up in resilience in different ways. So well-being, integrity, speaking out when you see something that's not, you know, you could be under a great deal of stress if you're seeing that your supervisor is doing something that's gray, mm -hmm. a gray area. So having difficult conversations. So we're starting to see this in the literature and nature and science and starting uh, programs. I'm developing the candidate management plan as we started with Nick, our colleague, mm -hmm. sort of department focused and in, in for, you know, fit for purpose. So engineers will have a different kind of need than, say, molecular sciences. One of the key things we're doing this year is to really develop further uh, management plans that include interactions, management, well-being, as required part of the program, so well-rounded. Sometimes if we don't require them, they don't attend thinking it's a waste of time, but we're finding we need to get them to, to consider, come on, guys, you know, this, is, this can be, you know, something that sneaks up on you. And also, they are really wonderful skills they to have. They are, for in the all parts century, of life, you know, absolutely. Because everywhere is moving rapidly. Absolutely. So, it, it, Twitter and science, and you know, it's Instagram and something else. I mean, it is a. It, tra what if you're a travel agent? Or, you know, they don't even exist anymore, no, do that's they? That's it. That's it. <laughs> but how you how you handle moving through different cultures? You know, is it through Instagram? You know, how do you handle being able to be safe, be aware? and not be fearful. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of fear out there too. My degree, I think regrettably, most management is by fear. Yeah. Where I'd like to see a lot more leadership. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and people flourish when they're given freedom, trust. Absolutely. And they diminish when they're under fear. And yeah. you don't get innovation. And you that's don't. So fear, frustrating. And we see some, some, I've been trying to deal with some situations that you know we're having fear as a driving force. It's really not healthy. No, and it's all. not a good environment. So you have many international students and you travel for your own research. How do global politics and other big issues impact yeah. on your own research, your HDR candidates' research projects, and international research in general? Yes, I love to travel. 
and I love getting to see how universities in different countries operate. So I've had an opportunity to spend time in China. I'm working closely with um, China University's Geoscience Wuhan. Every country has a really different style. I've been at ETH in Switzerland. A lot of it's around the government support of, of education, and that can change. Both China and Switzerland now have quite a bit of their GDP put into science, so we're seeing a lot change there. I've had two Code to Tell students, one German, one French, coming and seeing how resources are differently distributed, what possibilities they have. Every country has different possibilities. We have some students that want to come here and not go home. We're seeing with China a lot more students want to go home because there's a lot of opportunity um, right now. Well, there'll be continuing opportunity mm -hmm. as they grow their, their scientific um, expertise in China. It's pretty astounding growth at the moment. So in terms of global politics, we're seeing a very, I think, a very difficult time right now. And that's impacting choices students are making. I've just read recently that Indian students, while they were coming to Australia, we had some issues with Indian students here, which is terrible in, in Melbourne, not here. Um, and not that, that impacted things a little bit, so we've had some issues around cultural differences. Um, they're looking at the UK, who knows what the UK is gonna be like, and so we're seeing an influx of not just PhD student applicants, but staff that are concerned, and they should be. Um, the, the US is very difficult now for, for minority uh, students right now, and there is a drop there. Um, I don't know what the statistics are, but I can imagine we've seen a drop certainly in Indian students to the U.S. Iranian students, I'm, I'm struggling with. They're so good and so talented, and women, the women in engineering. So we have a very nice and wonderful uh, cultural uh, group of Iranians here at Macquarie. We have Iranian staff. And um, it's tough to see what's happening politically, and we're having a hard time bringing over more Iranian students because of the visa issues. So visas have become problematic. Um, certainly Iran is in a difficult position now, and it's their leadership, it's not the people, the same in the US. Mm -hmm. And um, also with China, um, the leadership, not the people, um, struggling with some upset with um, Canberra, and we saw a, a restriction of Chinese student visas. So we're very, very aware of when we offer scholarships or how we bring people in to put in the visa requirement time it's necessary in this day and age. Mm -hmm. So um, for my own international travel, I love it still. I, I'm not afraid of it. Um, I have been to Iran three times. It's been fantastic. And I have, I, at the moment, I wouldn't be able to go. I don't think we can go right now, but um, I'm certainly interested in more travel into areas that provide different cultural experiences. And certainly Iran does, does a, show you a different cultural experience. Mm -hmm. My own international students, I have two co-tutels, and that's been fantastic where the student spends half the time at one host, um, say in Germany, and one half with us. And those experiences, those students have really flourished from the different environments. That That's a great program. Yeah, and we learn a lot too. We do. They tell us what's going on. Absolutely. And I'm going back to my student who's based in Göttingen next year to see him graduate. And, um, you know, just seeing his his lifestyle there and then what he had here. Now, it's been fantastic. Yeah. They're quite joyful, really. They are joyful. Joyful experiences and, and joyful people for the most part. Yeah. Well, they're grateful for their opportunities. Yeah, yeah. You do a lot, and you have a very responsible job with many parts. So how do you manage your time to ensure that you remain energized and mm. fulfilled? Well, I don't always manage. 
Um, for the most part, I try not to work on weekends. That's something that when I first arrived in Australia, I said, you know, people would say, oh, what'd you do on the weekend? Oh, well, you know, I work. And they looked at me. <laughs> And it's so American. We work all the time in the U.S. There's a lot more burnout in the U.S. Um, they're starting to recognize it. You'll see Twitter. There was an acknowledgement of somebody actually having an email away. I'm not, you know, I'm not available this weekend. And also saw um, there's a movement there to actually take your vacation. Yes, we didn't take vacation. You just would. You would take Thanksgiving, Christmas, and you'd write your proposals. You know, that's what I did. I seriously, I worked. All the time. I mean, you, you head towards burnout. And I have a really high work ethic, so I probably should have taken more breaks than I did. Um, maybe I wanted to move to Australia because it would be a little bit of a change <laughs> from that pattern. But I, I do love the fact that we take weekends. And I've learned that culturally talking about work all the time is not actually an Australian thing you do. And I loved it. Long and may it last. Long may it last. It's changing. It is. I am getting emails on weekends now where I never did 10 years ago. It's interesting because I've just been on a week's leave and I put my reply. You might have got yeah, one. Yeah, I did. Um, <laughs> saying that I've, you know, yeah. I've taken yeah, the, the email off my phone and yep. I'm yep. not going to be looking and, at it. And now I think we need to start getting back into that. I have a bad habit of replying to emails quite quickly and feel a little mm. stressed when I don't respond. I have to train myself that if, if it's... Uh, you know, half a day later, it's okay. And often I get the response, thank you for your quick reply. I'm like, you know, I obviously they didn't expect it right away. So no, I'm trying course, to train myself. You know, you could have been in a meeting, you could have had a whole range of reasons where you wouldn't reply. And that would be normal. And I think that's one of the things I do. I think oh, I could no, just hang on. Yeah. Because sometimes too, on a reflection, you think, oh, perhaps I could have written that um, with more information. Absolutely. Or something and like I've that. made quick email response. I tend, if it's a difficult one, I tend to read it and not send mm. it. The ones that are just, and I'll, now I'm quicker with thanks, but one bad habit we have is that meetings that are a little bit boring, all of us will open up our computers and we'll do email while we're pretending to listen. Neither gets enough attention. Yeah. You know, when people talk about multitasking, they yeah. say switching. It's task switching. And so you're not actually giving... Either. No. Well, I've noticed, Saki, you know, our deputy vice chancellor uh, doesn't like having his computer present. And uh, our dean, um, before she went to Sydney, also didn't like having a computer present, although I wanted it there. I, I find there is a bit of addiction and you have to be careful. So I do struggle with that. But weekends, I really, you know, it's hard because I need to say, look, I'm just if I, you know, so worse comes worse, I'll do. I'll do a half hour, an hour work in the morning to get that nervousness out. So I'm not advocating my style because it won't work for everyone, but I sometimes I need to do just a little bit just so that I can say, now I can take the rest of the day off and not have something niggling in my back of my head. That's right, and it's, um, it's really important to have a complete break. Yeah. There's a really good article I found that I send to people periodically, which is called Darwin was a slacker and so should you be. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> and it talks about those natural scientists, how they did what you just said. They did work in the morning and then they would go on rambles or they would go yeah. and do something else. And they just went, well, I've done my work and yeah. now I'm doing these things. And that's where creativity lives. Absolutely. And what I love about Australia is this time period, first you get a month off, yay, um, is the Christmas to January time. Mm. It's a very traditional cultural thing is to take that month off. Of course, I don't. Australia doesn't open until after Australia. I, I know. I know. I found that out. And so what I do during that month is I'll be working. 
but I'll do it much more. You know, I'll come in because sometimes I'm acting dean or something because nobody's around. But I'll have a very different relaxed view of it, and I'll do work at different times. So I'll say I work in the morning, take a walk at summer, have a swim, and then work in the evening. And I feel that that change of pattern helps me a lot because the rest of the of the time I'm really working all day, and then I'm really tired at night. So getting enough sleep, taking weekends, and if I need to, working a little bit uh, on weekend mornings or uh, holidays I try and, you know, I won't take a full month off without doing something. I'd start to get ah, <laughs> nervous. <laughs> well, it's also what you like doing. It is what I like doing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. So thanks for joining me today, Tracy. Oh, well, thank you, Sally. It's been really fun. You have just listened to an episode of the Resourceful HDR podcast about the career and employment experiences of high-degree researchers, that is, Master of Research, PhD and Professional Doctorate candidates, graduates and others in the HDR ecosystem. You can also find me on Twitter as Resourceful HDR and on LinkedIn, Sally Purcell at Macquarie University. Macquarie University students and staff can also access the HDR Professional Development iLearn site. Mm-hmm.